When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today we're continuing our discussion of wilderness areas, the ban on bikes in the wilderness, and what the Sustainable Trails Coalition is trying to do to change that. Today I have with me two guests, Ted Stroll, President for the Sustainable Trails Coalition, and Jackson Ratcliffe, Treasurer and Board Member. Uh, One thing I've heard from some hikers that I've spoken with is that seeing a, a mountain biker in the wilderness would ruin the experience for them. Sure. Uh, I've even talked with people who claim that seeing a rider who's made his way deep into the wilderness in the course of a few hours covering the ground that took them days to cover would cheapen the effort that they had to go through to hike into that place. How would you respond to those comments from the hikers? First off, I respect that concern. I, I sat across the table from members of the Pacific Crest Trail Association uh, at a meeting that we had in May in which uh, they sincerely and fervently express that point of view, that it it diminishes their experience if they see a bicycle on a trail. And I don't think it's up to us to denigrate that feeling any more than one should denigrate somebody's, you know, organized religion or other strongly held point of view. If they feel that way, they do, and we shouldn't try to talk them out of it. For the people who tend to go to these areas – Many of them derive deep meaning in life. And that's, of course, what we're all trying to do in our lives is, is derive meaning from them. They derive deep meaning from the feeling of the vastness of the area they're in and their solitude in that area. That must be respected uh, 100%. And in everything I do, I keep that in mind and I do respect it. But let me say this as a practical matter. These are public places paid for by all the taxpayers of the United States. The experience that hikers want to preserve can be preserved, and yet bicycles can be accommodated. For example, there are too many wilderness areas, even to name, that are essentially unvisited by anyone. Some of these wilderness areas are enormous, like the South San Juan Wilderness in southern Colorado that is, that is huge and has hardly anybody in it. I, I understand that many of the trails have just disappeared for lack of use. You could ride mountain bikes in there probably most of the year, even on weekends, and there would be so few hikers to even see a bicyclist that nobody could be offended. And again, all over the, all over the western United States, there are wilderness areas in a similar condition. Even within two or three hours of the incredibly overpopulated Bay Area, We have things like the Snow Mountain Wilderness, where I've gone hiking at one of the main trailheads and seen that for an entire season, I mean, and the season in California is quite long, we don't have that much snow, for an entire season, like 24 people had signed in at the trailhead. And when you walk on the trail, you see that the trail was recently beautifully restored to an excellent condition, and it was covered with duff and debris because nobody was using that trail. That's within... Two to three hours of the Bay Area, a spectacular area, essentially unvisited. When you go to other places like around the western United States, you're talking about basically unvisited areas. So 
we could be out there riding for over thousands of miles of trail. Nobody would see us. To the extent that areas are more popular, as I said earlier, you can manage things so that mountain bikes are only out there like a couple days a week or alternate days, something like that. And uh, hikers who don't want to see cyclists don't have to. If they're on a multi-day backpacking trip, of course, they might. But there has to be some kind of reasonable accommodation. I mean, nothing is absolute. Then you get down to the tiny subset of hikers who, even if they're sitting in their offices in San Francisco or New York City, they feel like their lives are diminished because of the thought that somewhere out there a mountain biker is riding on a trail, even if they will never visit that trail themselves. And of course, then you're really just dealing with a puritanical mindset that is based on a kind of weird fundamentalist temperance movement view of wilderness that public policy should not support or ratify. I mean, there's the famous old, I I can't remember who said it, maybe it was H.L. Mencken, but somebody famously said that the Puritans' worst fear is that somebody out there somewhere is having a good time and enjoying himself. (laughs) And and that's true. And, And there are wilderness fanatics for whom that really is the case. Mountain biking is exhilarating in a way that, frankly, no other method of rugged wildland travel is. And I think, uh, you know, there, there is a small cohort that really is extremely bothered by the idea of other people having fun, even if they never witness it. And unfortunately, those people have a degree of influence within the Sierra Club, the Wilderness Society, the Pacific Crest Trail Association, and the Continental Divide Trail Council, people who are kind of the uh, traditional opponents of what we're trying to do. But I bring us back to the fact that wilderness areas are maintained by the people of the United States. We can't hold an entire generation of rugged outdoor recreationists like mountain bikers hostage to the uh, fundamentalist tub-thumping of a handful of of basically Puritans. I'll, I'll just throw out a slightly more abbreviated perspective of what Ted said. You know, those people who don't like seeing a bike, you know, how do they react when they see somebody on a horse or maybe a a backpacker who's wearing a red jacket? Do they feel the same way against those people? And if they don't, then obviously this is something more basic than really the the, the bike. They're they're trying to find an excuse to discriminate. And, And I think it really comes down to a discrimination issue. I can understand why they may not like bikes, but... The facts are, are such that it's a personal issue. It, it really isn't based on science. And I think rules and regulations should be based on science and fact, not perceptions of what's good and bad. Yeah, I would add to that also, by the way, that there is within the uh, Pacific Crest Trail uh, backpacking community, there are furious debates among the backpackers themselves about what is the right and most reverential way to approach the PCT. So if you look at the uh, debates on the PCT forum that is maintained by a separate organization, you'll see just incredible divisiveness and rancor over how somebody's walking on the trail, what kind of shoes they're wearing, like what color their tent is, how they behave in a campsite and so on. And so that points to kind of the, uh, the fanaticism that surrounds a lot of these trail access issues. But at the same time, that does come from the fact that people are striving to find meaning in their lives. We live in this increasingly kind of um, amorphous society in which uh, meaning is difficult to come by. People have jobs that alienate them. They, they don't have close relationships. They spend time online. 
they're trying to find meaning and and being out in the outdoors under one's own power is a great way to do it and that has to be respected you just don't want to get it as jackson said warped into this kind of discriminatory mentality where a lot of your meaning comes from deriving satisfaction over excluding other people for no scientific or environmental reason super interesting to hear that that hatred happens even within the backpacking community itself. It seems a little yes. backwards to me personally, but maybe I just don't understand it. I don't know. So moving on, let's say you know the bill that you're proposing does pass. What would be the next steps that mountain bikers would take? Sure. Well, th- I'll answer that one because that kind of gets into the legal language of the uh, model bill that I drafted. The bill gives an incentive to land managers to make a decision within about three years of what they're going to do. And the reason for that is the agencies are so glacial in their response to many uh, statutes passed by Congress that we can easily see a situation in which Congress passes this bill and 10 years later, the Forest Service is just sending letters to uh, relevant members of Congress saying that it doesn't have the budget to deal with this. So the bill basically requires them to decide something within about three or four years or there'll be consequences if they don't. So uh, what we envision is that, say, take the uh, Sequoia National Forest, the uh, supervisor of that forest, would sit down with all of the uh, interest groups, equestrians, mountain bikers, hikers, and other people as well, and go over the maps and figure out where bikes might be tried, say, as a pilot program. And you give it a try for a couple of years and see how it works. And then you, uh, if there's some problem, you uh, make adjustments. And if there are no problems, maybe you open a few more trails to bikes. And at that point, IMBA and local mountain bike organizations like Sorba or uh, Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance would be very much at the table and helping to craft these plans. Gotcha. So in the interim three years, you know, the trails would still remain closed to bikes then, ultimately? Uh, yes, unless this would be almost like too much to hope for. But literally the day after the bill passed, some National Park Service or BLM manager could say, okay, I already know that the you know, XYZ trail is perfectly good for bikes. There's no problems with it. I'm just going to open it tomorrow. They could do that if they want to. And so maybe we would see that happen in a few areas, especially areas where hardly anybody goes anyway. But in areas that are more contentious, again, like the Indian Peaks Wilderness or the uh, Desolation Wilderness in Lake Tahoe, then probably the whole three years would be taken up by uh, various forms of head scratching and navel gazing and fretting and ruminating and wrangling. Is it possible that a land manager could just say, oh, I don't want to open any of my trails and mountain bikes. I want to have to deal with that. Could they do that or would there have to be a bigger process for them? Yeah. yeah. No, actually, the uh, model bill anticipates that and tells them that although they have the discretion to make any decision they want, Congress would direct them to try to accommodate diverse human-powered travel uses to the extent possible. So although they have discretion, they are formally discouraged from simply saying no bikes because it's inconvenient or because they personally don't like bicycles. They're required to think about ways of accommodating everybody. And if after they've thought about it, they genuinely believe they can't do it, then yes, they can say no to bikes. Gotcha. So there has to be a process. There has to be a reason instead of just no, no bikes. So exactly. That's good to hear. 
how do you think this potential radical expansion of mountain bike access, if all goes according to plan, again, we're operating under the assumption the bill passes, how would this impact the sport of mountain biking and how do you think it would impact local economies of towns located in these areas? You know, first and foremost, there's obviously the 110 million acres that theoretically becomes accessible. As I alluded to at the beginning of the uh, talk today, I really think this helps get rid of the stigma, that stain on mountain biking, that we are somehow uh, not an environmental group. I really think that this could go a long ways towards reconciling some of the divergence in environmental protection approaches, projects and such between groups like the Sierra Club and NIMBA. If this was gone, I, I would really hope that maybe we'd, we'd see some more and better cooperation. You, know, you mentioned a little while ago, Ted was mentioning about how wilderness areas are being set up today. There's a lot of compromise being put into the borders of things that are made wilderness. That are political compromises so that you know bikes can get access. There was some stuff in New Mexico where they actually moved the line so that there could be a trail that bikes would be able to, allowed to access. Hopefully a lot of that stuff would go away. It would be much more of a pure environmental effort and I think the local mountain bike efforts would not, again as I said, not have the stigma that uh, you know, we're not allowed in wilderness. And I just think it would be a, a very much a benefit to everybody concerned. Let's take some of these remote wilderness areas, like we keep talking about the South San Juan wilderness in Colorado. How many mountain bikers do you think are actually going to access these deep, remote wilderness areas? I've read a few hiker-based editorials saying that mountain bikers are just going to overrun these places with hordes and hordes of people. But my personal take is, man, it's hard to get to some of these spots, even on a bike. So, what? I mean, what do you think? How many people are going to be accessing these remote places. You can get an answer to that already by looking at the adjacent areas. I have mountain biked at least twice the Snow Mesa area of the Continental Divide and Colorado Trail that runs uh, east of uh, Spring Creek Pass and goes over to Creed. And my fear is that that will someday be turned into a wilderness. We'll lose access to this uh, spectacular ride that is mostly above 12,000 feet and is just phenomenal beyond belief. But the point is... There's nobody out there, and that includes there's, there's really no mountain bikers either. In fact, I don't think I've seen another mountain biker uh, on that ride. I've seen a, maybe one or two hikers, and that's, of course, you know, in the summer at, at the best time of year. So I think if you look at a place like the La Garita Wilderness, which adjoins that area, that's what you would see is just the very occasional mountain biker, and maybe occasionally once or twice in the summer, hopefully having a friendly encounter with the very occasional hiker who's in those areas. So then, of course, the question comes up, well, then why even uh, do this at all if so many people are affected? And the answer is that in the wilderness areas that are closer to urban areas, like those uh, near Seattle, Portland, San Diego, uh, Denver, Salt Lake City, uh, Albuquerque, and so on. Uh, there, I think that y- you would have a lot of interest in riding those areas. And again, the local managers would simply have to work out a creative solution, making everybody happy, including preserving the legitimate demands of hikers for a contemplative hiking experience where they don't feel like they're being crowded by other people. I'll just interject my two cents here. Even, you know, I'm a hiker and a backpacker and a trail runner as well. Even in my experience, just with foot travel in wilderness areas, 
the most heavily used trails are the ones that are closest to the trailhead and right. the first few miles. And then when you get very few people, even hikers, access the middle of these wilderness areas. You know, That's right. It seems to be most of the use and congestion is right at the boundary line. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. And here in the Bay Area, again, which is absurdly overcrowded at this point, I can still go uh, from my house in San Jose, drive to a trailhead that's about 25 minutes from here, and even on a weekend, and this is, of course, it's not federal land, it's obviously not wilderness, but I might see two hikers, three hikers, and that would be on a day that is busier. It's entirely possible I would see no one at all. And this is in an area where there are just you know tens of thousands of hikers and tens of thousands of mountain bikers. There still is hardly anybody out there. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Personally, I think user conflict issues are overinflated. Um, and I have lots of great interactions with users on all sides of the table on the trail. So I'd just love to see more just mutual respect. Hopefully we can right. continue to foster that. So we talked about what would happen if the bill does pass. What happens next if the bill doesn't pass, if it fails? What would you do then? Well, first of all, I'll be very sad. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I still, Ted and I talked about this. At least we've started the discussion again and, and really brought this. This has been a problem that the mountain bike community has, from what I can tell, kind of ignored and stuck their head in the sand on. This has brought it back up to the forefront. We're getting lovely press, lots of people talking about this because you know, mountain bikers love the woods as well, and we're being discriminated against, and it comes back to that. So I think if it fails, we'll just have to uh, wait a few more years and try again And because I do believe, from my experience, much of this anti-bike rhetoric is generational. Here in Marin, I'm, we're really running into lots of issues with the, the mountain bike haters. And the one consistent thing when you, know, you go to the public meetings, the number of people screaming against mountain biking who are under the age of 50 is zero. Most of the people are, are older, and it's very much uh, elasticity of the brain issue. People are not flexible in their perceptions of things. And so I would just hope that over time, uh, we would mount another uh, effort when the older people are gone and, and the younger people are in charge. So you think eventually, at some point or another, one of these days, it's going to happen. It's a pretty much foregone conclusion. Nothing is ever a foregone conclusion. I mean, uh, you know, Fidel and Raul Castro still rule Cuba long after people thought that they would go away. But we shouldn't overstate our optimism. I would point out that the Wilderness Act itself took eight years to get through Congress. And if you uh, read the congressional record and the debates in 1956 and 1957, 58, when Wilderness Act proponents were first trying to get it through Congress, it looked extremely difficult and very problematic and incredibly contentious. And yet, eight years later, the Wilderness Act was passed, and it's a landmark in conservation, not only by American standards, but world standards. It took eight years. And I personally hope that we get something through next year, because the political climate is right, and members of Congress are turning out to be so receptive to what we're proposing. But if we do not do that, we will simply have to plug ahead and I think Jackson is right that eventually, simply because of generational change, it will happen. Somebody else famously said, social progress is measured one funeral at a time. <laughs> and 
you know, one hates to be so blunt about it, but but that is true. I mean, a lot of the opponents are both kind of literally and figuratively disappearing. And I say that as somebody who's approaching 60 years old myself, so my own remaining time is limited, and I'm very much aware of that. I hope I can, I hope I can get out on some wilderness trails while I'm still able to ride a bike. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit, uh, Jackson mentioned the generational thing. It's, it's kind of like you know, these same uh, sex marriage debates that I've been watching. I mean, I read these polls. And apparently even uh, Republicans, uh, conservative Republicans who are under, what, age 40 or something, they just don't really care about it. Whereas uh, I get the impression that even many kind of liberal and moderate Democrats who are over 65, they don't really like the idea. So you see this. The point, the point I'm making is you see this everywhere. It's not just with mountain biking. It's with a whole panoply of issues. And again, looking at Cuba, you know, the elderly Cuban emigres, are, they don't want to have any kind of uh, rapprochement with the Cuban government, even though the policy of uh, exclusion has obviously like, backfired tremendously. But again, I think you know, Cubans in Miami under age 50 or under age 40, they're perfectly happy with trying something new. So I see it as being the same with mountain biking. So if the bill doesn't pass, I will be disappointed. But the other thing I will say is, if we can't get this done, then I do feel comfortable that nobody else could either. If we do fail, we will have failed despite the fact that STC has the following. We have an excellent board of very intelligent, energetic board members. We have two lobbyists who are really superb at what they do. Even though they're not mountain bikers themselves, they are so enthusiastic about this that they, you know, they contact us at, at 2 in the morning. They contact us on, uh, on Sunday night. They are working tirelessly and really putting in a lot more effort than, than we're paying them for to uh, get this done. They have taken it on as a personal mission. And then the final leg of the tripod is that our donors have been incredibly generous. We haven't gotten a cent from the major bicycle companies but individual donors down to individual bike shops and some of the smaller uh, mountain bike companies and just individual donors have been phenomenally generous. So if we fail, despite having all those things in our favor, then I really think that nobody else could do it either. And that gives me a certain amount of peace of mind. And I do think that in five years or 10 years, it will happen anyway. Just one more question in closing. What trails or areas that are currently closed to bikes would you guys personally like to see open so you can ride them? What, what would you love to ride? Oh, Jackson is jonesing to answer that, so he should go first. Uh, part of me doesn't want to answer it because I'll uh, generate some noise. I started this whole mountain bike advocacy work in Marin because 15% uh, of the trails in Marin are bike legal, whereas equestrians have access to 78%. 25% of the trails that are in Marin are in Point Reyes National Seashore Land. Bikes have access to 0% of those trails. There are a few trails I do not believe bikes should have access to. They're just too congested. But having hiked many of those trails, a majority of them are empty. So I would love to see some of the trails in Point Reyes opened up and so I could ride from my house and get a gigantic loop out to Point Reyes and back on lovely trails that are currently heavily used by a equestrian center. And for me, um, I would say I particularly would like to ride the uh, Snow Mountain Wilderness north of here because nobody goes there. And it is, from what I've seen on foot, it's really beautiful. There's a, about a 20-mile loop. I think it's called the Cataract Loop. And it has something like 10 waterfalls on it. I've only seen one of the 10, but it is really a magnificent thing. 
and uh, talk about solitude. I mean, you really do have it all to yourself. So I'd like to be able to mountain bike that rather than have to hike it. Some of the wilderness areas around Lake, Lake Tahoe would be great. I would like to be able to do the loop from Sonora Pass up to Levitt Lake and then onto the Pacific Crest Trail, which meanders uh, in and out of wilderness and then back over to Sonora Pass. That looks really spectacular. It's mostly above timberline. It's probably mostly above ten or 11,000 feet. I would like to be able to mountain bike the uh, South San Juan Wilderness because that, again, is what looks like from Google Earth a spectacular plateau of grasslands that's mostly above 12,000 feet. It would be similar, I think, to Snow Mesa, which is just one of the most amazing places ever. And it would be nice to uh, ride from uh, Creed over to the uh, Wheeler Geologic Area. And by the way, Greg, that makes me uh, think of, uh, you had a question about what's wrong with like national monument status. You know, why do uh, the purists seek wilderness designation to the exclusion of everything else? I just want to say, I see why they do it, because wilderness is the most permanent form of land protection. You can have other forms of land protection that are quite good in terms of, you know, preserving the environment. But uh, with regard to national monuments, the little-known Wheeler geologic area, which is between Creed and, I think, uh, South Fork in Colorado, that was a national monument between 1908 and 1950, and it was, it was actually decommissioned. It's still in some kind of preserved status, and it's surrounded by wilderness. But the National Monument designation went away, and I don't know exactly why. So wilderness is very hard to get rid of because Congress has to actually pass a statute, uh, either creating or eliminating or modifying a wilderness area. I just don't want to see a situation in which some of the most determined wilderness advocates get their way and basically every roadless area in the United States that is public land is turned into a wilderness area and then you can't ride a bike in it. I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that we may be heading somewhat in that direction. There's this new uh, group called, uh, I think it's called Save Montana Trails or something, and mm. they allege that in the last 10 years, they have lost 800 miles of trail in Montana that is not wilderness, simply because uh, the local Forest Service people think these trails may someday become wilderness, and so they banned bicycles administratively. So we're looking at that kind of scenario. Have you guys been keeping tabs on the ongoing land inventory in Western North Carolina right now? I'm currently keeping tabs on that, and uh, they're inventorying and analyzing all the land in Pisgah and Nantahala National Forest for potential wilderness areas. And many of those roadless areas, you know, include much of the best mountain biking currently in Western North Carolina. So, Right. You know, um, I, I've heard different things. I, I was interviewed by a newspaper reporter there who's a mountain biker, and he told me that he foresees in uh, 2017 the loss of, I, I can't remember if he said dozens of miles of trail or literally hundreds of miles of trail, but he has a very gloomy view of, of what's about to happen there. But then I talked to um, one of the people who's involved with uh, Sorba, and he said he thought that was uh, exaggerated and that the threat is not that great. Just yesterday, some press release was issued saying that uh, IMBA and the Wilderness Society and a host of local groups have worked out a, a memorandum of understanding that everybody's happy with. And I have no basis to judge whether that's a good thing or a, a bad thing. I have no idea. What I do know, though, is that we hear these allegations again and again that the traditional process of sitting down at the table with the opponents has resulted in 
the preservation of a few miles of trail and the loss of dozens or, or maybe a hundred miles of trail. I've heard this before about Mount Hood when those wilderness negotiations took place. And where else? I guess there was... Down in Santa Fe, I think. Down yes, in that's right. In, in New Mexico, there's the allegation that the mountain bike advocates saved like a mile or two of trail and lost something like 70 miles. I don't know if these, if these allegations are true or not, but if there's even a smidgen of truth to them, it shows the uh, inability of the current negotiation system to do anything but just lead to a slow, steady uh, loss of trails. And that's what we want to, uh, we want to overcome that. Any final thoughts from you guys? My only final thought is if we manage to get this reform through, I think it will be better for everybody. It will, it will even be better for like the Wilderness Society and the Sierra Club. They may attract more new members. The wilderness areas will be in better condition. They'll be better managed. There'll be more people out there doing things that keeps them physically fit instead of staring at smartphones and tablets all day. It really is a win-win. And so if we succeed, even the doubters will, I think, eventually in 10 years, scratch their heads and wonder what the fuss was all about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, guys. I really do appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules to talk with us. And uh, I feel like I've learned a lot more about the STC, the goal to get mountain bike access in wilderness, and uh, hopefully our listeners did too. Great. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. All right. That's all for today, folks. And If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the Single Tracks podcast via iTunes. Peace.